Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 133. I know that these episodes on Cuba have been a wander, and they remain a wander. But stay with me, because it's all going to tie together by the end of the wander. And some of that tying together, well, we will do that today. Today will help with that. What I mean is that I feel compelled to start this episode by getting out of some of the details for just a moment and dedicating this episode to giving an overview of the events that take us from the coup by Batista in 1952 to the fall of Batista and his government on New Year's Day in 1959. These were two bookend events and bookend dates that essentially define the period that is the Cuban Revolution, and they define the point at which Castro finally comes to power. It really is a miraculous story, and when you hear it, you might have to scratch your head in order to try and understand how such a small group of radicals could eventually mushroom into enough men, just enough, and enough force, just enough, to seize enough control of an entrenched government that had at its head a military man, cunning enough in his own right. Those rebels found just enough power to successfully seize this government through their own coup, and a coup which was quite justified in Castro's own mind, and in the mind of other revolutionaries as well. And with Castro and his supporters seemingly without the ability to understand the parallel between their own actions to wrestle the government out of its current hands and what Batista himself had done similarly to the Cuban people some seven years before. After we do that, that is, after we summarize and give an overview of the major events and moments that occur in that seven-year period of gestation and revolution, we'll proceed to cover in more detail, and over the next several episodes, a handful of those important events that I highlight in today's timeline. Events that happened in between those two dates and during those seven years that are significant enough and interesting enough to tell the story about and entertain you with them. And the next big event on the timeline, and the next one that we'll tell a more detailed story about, and we'll do it in the next episode, is the story of the attack on the Moncada barracks by Castro, an event which turns out to be the first substantial armed conflict of the revolution. And the consequences of the attack and the trials and the sentencing which followed in the aftermath set a trajectory for Castro and his revolutionaries 
and helped to define the remainder of the events and the outcome of the revolution. So let's just dive right in and do what we said we were going to do, which is to provide an overview of events in that seven-year time frame. Well, you already know this, but Batista's coup happened in March 1952, along with the passing of a revised Cuban constitution. By the end of the month, actually March 27th, a little more than two weeks later, this new government of Batista, taken by coup, was already being recognized formally by the United States. Castro would take at least nominal steps almost immediately to denounce the coup by Batista, and he even filed a lawsuit that went nowhere, as we previously talked about in an earlier episode. Castro certainly was not a central figure in the power structure of Cuban politics at that moment, but he was an up-and-coming and influential force on the campus of the University of Havana which, as we have explained, was the epicenter of gangsterismo politics in Cuba. You have to appreciate that killing people for political purposes in Cuba at the time, if you can believe this, was almost more acceptable than murder for any other reason. Get your head around that one if you can. It actually plays right into the idea of the Cubans assassinating others, perhaps even JFK. Think about that for a moment. But I digress, so back to the timeline. Castro knew almost immediately that the only way the events of Batista's coup could be reversed was through force. And so, he began almost immediately to begin the planning for a revolution that would occur by force. A little over two months later, on June 2, 1952, Carlos Prio, the deposed leader and other moderates met in Montreal, Canada, and they declared their opposition to Castro. Their agreement would become known as the Montreal Pact. They would later approach the U.S. government and ask it to condemn Batista and his seizure of the government. As for Castro himself, he would spend the next 15 months assembling the first phase of his revolutionary forces. He would put some 30,000 miles on his own car, crisscrossing the Cuban landscape, handpicking new recruits to the revolutionary cause, almost always in very small groups, and focused from the very beginning on choosing men and women that were likely to be loyal and that were open to the doctrine that Castro was providing them. In the beginning, even though Castro's leanings were already fundamentally leftist, it may have been more about anti-imperialism at that moment than it was about the Marxist-Leninist doctrine. But that was a calculated political move by Castro himself, a man who knew that he had to lead people progressively into his own thinking in a way that they could understand. Recruitment, training, and indoctrination would be combined with meticulous planning, and finally in July 1953, about 15 months after Batista's coup, Castro would declare himself ready and he would lead a raid on the Moncado military barracks installation on the east side of the island. It would utilize 160 of Castro's recruits. We'll tell the entire story of the raid in a separate episode, but the raid itself was the first armed conflict of the revolution, and its aim was simple enough, too. The Moncado installation had a sizable cache of guns and ammo, which, if captured or otherwise commandeered as part of the raid, 
would provide an essential arms and ammunition supply to the growing rebel force. Guns and ammo that were vital to winning an armed conflict with Batista's military forces. The raid itself took place on the 26th of July, 1953, and it failed miserably. And a handful, I believe actually about six, of Castro's rebel forces were killed immediately during the raid. But not before the rebels killed 19 military men and police guarding the installations that were attacked. Then, as the better part of the rebel force was retreating in the midst of its failed attempt, a portion of those forces were captured, but others fled successfully for the moment into the surrounding areas and countryside. Most of the rebels that were captured in the immediate aftermath were slaughtered by the military, almost 60 of them. And their bodies were then strewn around the Mikado installation in an effort to make it look as though they died during the armed exchange at the compound itself and before the rebels actually began their retreat. It was an awful, false portrayal of events by the army. Castro himself escaped initially as the rebels retreated, but he was eventually captured in the nearby countryside less than a week after the original raid on the Mankato. Castro was jailed, and some three months later, in October 1953, he would go to trial. Acting as his own counsel, he was a lawyer, the trial would become a highly publicized venue for him to plead his case for the cause of the revolution. Despite his impressive oratory and compelling arguments at trial, he would be convicted and sentenced to 15 years in prison, the stiffest sentence given to any of the 122 defendants. And he would serve the first two years of the sentence until Batista, acting under significant external pressure that was building at the time, would commute his sentence and that of his brother Raul and others to two years. In the end, the Mancata raid was a military failure by the rebels, and it produced a tremendous loss of life. But it became, in a sense, a true rallying cry, a galvanizing moment in the aftermath for everyone. A validation of those opposed to Batista, a validation that force was necessary, and a reminder that the use of it would be met with brutal oppression by Batista's regime. The brutal and savage way that Batista's army personnel sought immediate revenge during the attack, killing some 54 of the rebels who were captured by the federal troops as they fled, was a turning point for many of the peoples of Cuba. It was a mass massacre. And it was one that looked like anything but the rule of law being applied to the act. It was a critical pivot point in the Cuban view about Batista and the regime. It is also here in the oratory during the trial that Castro would become famously close to becoming a living martyr as well, with his famous history will absolve me speech, as he put on his own defense and took advantage of the platform. It was a venue open for reporters to see and report on a dictator's calculated mistake of epic proportions. Coincidentally, with some of the Moncada trial results in October 1953, Batista announces free elections to be held in the following November of the next year. 
That is about 13 months later, in November 1954. Batista would cleverly leave, temporarily, the position of president for a short while so that he could technically once again run for another four-year term as Cuba's president. For much of 1953, Batista had used the first year of office to get himself established in the growing partnership with the Mafia in the grand plan for Havana. And he had begun his work to clean up the casinos by bringing Lansky in and purging some of the so-called elements that were causing the problems in Cuba's gambling industry. Batista was hardly concerned about a small ragtag group of radicals, regardless of whether Castro or others were behind them. But suddenly, with the Moncado affair and its disastrous handling by the Cuban government, the game surrounding public sentiment in Cuba had begun to change. The Moncada attack had awakened the Batista government to some of the dangers to the regime that were lurking underneath the veneer of Cuban society. Batista would respond, as almost all dictators do, with the addition of more repressive surveillance to find those engaging in subversive activities, and then he would apply more brutal force to those that they found engaging in it. The regime simply became more dictatorial, at a time where the calculated politics still favored protection of the elitist class in subjugation of any broad-based dissent. The old power structures were still firmly in place, and a double down on all of that was all that Batista thought he needed at this point in time. In February 1954, with Castro in jail now for about four or five months after his trial, attacks occur this time around the time of Carnival, attacks on leaders of the Federation of University Students. And this is done as Batista tightens his reign on dissent. By May 1954, Castro and many of the other rebels convicted as part of the Moncado incident had already served about seven or eight months in jail. But within the public realm, a general mass movement had been started to call for Castro's release and the release of others involved in the attacks and trials. It would take another year for this movement to matriculate and find force in nature. And during that year, Castro would write and smuggle out of prison, page by page, his revolutionary manifesto, and it would be published in Cuba and begin to be distributed clandestinely across the island. It would now contain the famous words, history will absolve me. Meanwhile, the government would continue to go on its merry way in partnership with the mob, and Havana would continue to grow and prosper as a destination spot of international renown. The Batista plan was working for the mafia. But the world was looking inward at Cuba. The Moncado affair had gotten the attention of many around the globe, and the brutal reprisal by Batista's forces, like the tip of an iceberg, brought great suspicion to outsiders, who mostly knew little about the regime, but immediately became suspect of its respect for democratic principles in light of the incident. All that culminated in November 1955. At that time, Batista would bow to both internal pressure within Cuba and also to external diplomatic pressures, especially from the United States. As a result, he would commute the sentences of Raul and Fidel Castro, among others, as part of a general prisoner amnesty around the event, 
shortening their sentences to two years, meaning that their prison terms would now be good enough. They were released almost immediately. Again, Batista betting on this act as if seemingly it would win back the support of at least some of the populace by freeing this martyr, Castro. Well, for a second time, the tree would fall in the wrong direction for Batista. Almost immediately after his release in November 1954, Castro would become vocal across the Cuban landscape, calling for more violent uprisings and the overthrow of Batista. And Batista would then make the decision to detain him again. Only before he could be detained, Castro himself, at the end of 1955, fled to Mexico. There he would live in exile for the better part of 1956. Continuing his quest to build an exile force and combine it with a growing internal insurgency inside Cuba that had continued to develop in his physical absence. So 1956 would be a year in exile in Mexico for Castro. A year where Castro would gather his physical, emotional, and moral self, gather up his being after his Cuban prison experience. It would be a time that he would reconnect with his brother, Raul, who would also flee to Mexico after being released. It would be a time where he was captured by Mexican authorities under the long arm of Cuban extradition and placed in a Mexican prison for a short time, as Cuba and Batista used their own diplomatic efforts to chase him down. It's in this prison that he would meet the infamous Che Guevara, the young and erudite Argentine doctor and it is here that he would strike up a lifelong, close relationship that would put Guevara at the heart of the revolution with him. It is here that he would sharpen his own manifesto of what was ahead, and it is here that he would envision and plan the details of what would be needed to return to Cuba and finish the job. To take the revolution back to Cuba and defeat Batista, the details of a return, the details of the next armed campaign, and after. Grand plans of a man with little money or resources, or even organizational skill for that matter, but with a gift of uniting men in a common cause. They would recruit and train men in a remote area of Mexico, and finally, at the end of 1956, in December, they would be ready for the return and the next attack. Having raised a small amount of money, Castro would purchase and have converted a small yacht, the Grandma. It would be their singular naval transport vessel, and in December 1956, it would carry Castro and 81 more of his crusaders in a rough ride across the Gulf of Mexico to land on the south side of the island of Cuba. There would be complications on the sea journey, and it would take longer than expected, and it would arrive later than it should have on the shores of Cuba, completely wrecking the synchronized plan of Castro's to join others, including Frank Pius, others who were to start the uprising at a precise point in time. It was another failed element of execution of these paramilitary Cubans. And while the failed uprising failed at that moment, it got Castro back on the island early in 1957. Now he was physically back and now physically able to begin building a rebel army. In a separate episode, we'll tell the story of the grandma 
and the subsequent landing back in Cuba. Castro would flee in the initial fighting and move into the mountains of the Sierra Maestra, a mountain range on the southeast side of the island that almost right from the shore rises steeply to a high altitude. It's an area that's full of treacherous terrain to traverse, and so it made for an easier hideout of this clandestine group that was destined to become a band of guerrilla forces, a place where the Federal Army was not inclined to go, at least during those initial moments to pursue with any veracity these new guerrillas. Once the rebels, once again, ran away and dispersed into the folds of Cuba. 1957 and 1958 would be the story of Castro as the militant holding up in the Sierra Maestra on a terror to commence putting together a guerrilla revolutionary force of sizable enough scale and then once again assembled and trained to begin moving against Batista's military and do it before Batista found him in the mountains and smashed him to smithereens before Castro could get big enough to assure avoidance of that confrontation. So the years 1957 and 1958 were the war years, and it's surprising how Castro's army would gear up to a dimension in size and skill and armaments, and do it just at the same time as Batista's army became more weary of its own mission to pursue them. And then the precious moment would come where the federal troops were weary enough, and the balance of power would go to the guerrillas. If you are a military type studying this conflict, you may start with the troop numbers, and you would be astounded by how outmanned the rebels were, and yet, eventually, they would overcome. How did Castro's untrained guerrillas beat Batista's war machine? It's a great question. Well, I found a great article on HistoryNet.com that summarizes this so perfectly. And so, rather than trying to tell the story in my own words, I'll just read this article to you. It really does tell the rest of the story for today's episode. History likes to portray the early days of the Cuban Revolution as a classic David and Goliath battle between a bullying government and a small band of poorly equipped rebels. It wasn't quite that simple. Despite his charismatic personality and dogged determination to succeed, whatever the cost, Castro wasn't Cuba's only revolutionary in the late 1950s. Others, acting clandestinely in Cuba's towns and cities, were equally intent on bringing down Batista's authoritarian government. Without these rebels and the grassroots support they sowed among the Cuban people, the revolution might not have been possible. One of them was Frank Pius. He was a young teacher from Santiago de Cuba who had become increasingly politicized after Batista's audacious power grab. Forming a small opposition group in Santiago, he secretly merged with Castro's 26th of July movement in 1955. Rather than relocating to Mexico, where Castro was in exile, Pius decided to remain in Santiago, where he coordinated a well-organized underground resistance to the Batista regime. It was from here that he planned an urban uprising in late 1956 to coincide with the landing of Castro's expeditionary force on the southern coast. Later, when Castro was safely installed in the mountains, Pius collaborated closely with the rebels, forming a vital link between the underground cells in the cities 
and the revolutionaries in the Sierra Maestra. More visible and vulnerable than Castro in the hot, sticky back streets of Santiago, Pius was ultimately tracked down and murdered by Batista's police in July 1957. He was just 22. But even in death, his ideas lived on. He had already played a vital part in launching the Cuban Revolution. Then there was Celia Sanchez, who was the daughter of a Cuban doctor from Manzanillo, a small city on the cusp of the Sierra Maestra. Inspired by Castro's 26th of July movement, she formed her own cell in Manzanillo and provided a vital conduit for the nascent rebel army, sending supplies and new recruits up into the mountains. By 1957, she had moved permanently to the Sierra Maestra hideout, becoming the first woman to join the revolutionaries and ultimately forming the Mariana Grajales Brigade, an all-female military platoon, in 1958. In time, she also became Castro's lover and closest confidant. A cornerstone of Castro's early success was his ability to use the news media to advance his cause. In February 1957, with Celia Sanchez's help, Castro lured Herbert Matthews, a reporter for the New York Times, to meet him at a secret location in the Sierra Maestra for an exclusive interview. Ever since the skirmish in the cane field that had occurred upon Castro's landing with the other troops from the Grandma, well, the Cuban press had erroneously reported that Castro was dead. Incensed, Castro wanted to loudly announce to the world that he was very much alive and ready to fight. During his meeting with Matthews, Castro boldly exaggerated the size of his army, and he arranged for the same handful of men to repeatedly march by to give the journalists the impression that he was harboring a significant military force. The trick worked. Matthews was smitten. His story in the New York Times a week later began, Fidel Castro, the rebel leader of Cuba's youth, is alive and fighting hard and successfully in the rugged, almost impenetrable fortresses of the Sierra Maestra. It was one of the biggest newspaper scoops of the 20th century and the first of several propaganda coups for Castro in which he was able to paint himself as a heroic outlaw to the foreign press. If Castro was Robin Hood, Batista was quickly becoming an unsavory Prince John. As challenges to his increasingly corrupt regime mounted, so did the resulting repression. An attempted attack on the presidential palace in Havana in March 1957 was led by a student leader, Jose Antonio Echevarria, and it was ruthlessly suppressed. A naval mutiny in the city of Cienfuegos in September was snuffed out with bombers and tanks. Concealed in the Sierra Maestra, Castro and his growing band of revolutionaries managed to avoid that fate emerging sporadically from the mountains and using guerrilla tactics, the rebels scored an early victory in January 1957 when, with just 23 functioning weapons, they stormed a small army barracks on Cuba's south coast. Four months later, the rebels, now numbering only 127, successfully overran a military garrison 
in the coastal town of El Uvero. From the humid days of spring 1957 until the final rebel victory in 1959, Cuba remained in a simmering state of civil war. Many in Castro's original expeditionary force, having no military experience, could barely fire a rifle, but forced to learn fast in the active training fields of the Sierra Maestra, a significant proportion of those who survived the disastrous landing evolved into competent soldiers and leaders. Ernesto Che Guevara, the Argentine doctor who we explained had joined the mission in Mexico City in 1955 as a group medic, had forsaken his medical kit for a box of ammunition during the ambush in the cane field after they had landed on the grandma. He quickly grew into a fearless warrior. Guevara became Castro's right-hand man, an effective and ruthless guerrilla warrior who expounded a rigid socialist ideology and led by example in battle. Brave, disciplined, and zealously committed, he also had a darker side, showing little mercy for captured informants. He sometimes executed them himself. But at the same time, Guevara played a key role in advancing the lot of the impoverished people in the mountains. Under his leadership, schools were established and bread ovens built. These and other such small-scale infrastructure projects that took root in remote Cuban villages were crucial in sealing the continued support of the rural working class. Without their backing as runners, guides, and volunteers, Castro would have struggled to gain a foothold in the mountains. Another important figure was Camilo Cienfuegos. He was a Cuban from Havana who had been one of the last recruits to join Castro's expeditionary force in Mexico. He proved to be Guevara's equal as a soldier and leader. He was made a military commander in 1957, and the following summer he formed one of the two columns that Castro sent west to ultimately occupy the rest of Cuba. Guevara and Cienfuegos were complemented at the top of the rebel command chain by Raul Castro and Juan Almeida, both veterans of the Moncada barracks attack in 1953. They had served their prison sentences alongside Fidel on the Isle of Pines. Raul was young, only 25 in 1956. He was impulsive and less charismatic than his hot-headed brother, Fidel. Almeida was the rebels' only Afro-Cuban commander, and he was an important symbol for a revolution that professed to be non-discriminatory and egalitarian. It was this tight core of commandants who helped establish Castro's first permanent base in the Sierra Maestra in 1958, a well-camouflaged military camp nestled in the cloud forests ringing Cuba's highest peaks that became known as Comandancia La Plata. La Plata was rustic but sophisticated and well-hidden. Batista's troops never found it. It was from here, under the supervision of Che Guevara, that the rebels set up their own radio station, Radio Rebelde as an alternative source of news and propaganda to the Cuba state-controlled press. As Batista's repression spread, so did his unpopularity. Refusing to take the growing military threats seriously, the Cuban president chose to use his secret police to harass, to torture, 
and publicly execute people that were suspected of aiding and abetting Castro's band of barbudos, which is Spanish for bearded ones. Those scruffy beards, which took months to grow, were a form of identification and quite symbolic amongst the revolutionaries. Not surprisingly, the ugliness of the Batista response has prompted a backlash, not just among Cubans, a backlash from people who gradually deserted the government in favor of the 26th of July movement. And it happened among Batista's foreign allies as well. In March 1958, as the regime's excesses grew even more discomforting, the U.S. government imposed an arms embargo on Cuba and recalled its ambassador. At the same time, the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, hedging its bets on the outcome of the conflict, secretly began channeling some $50,000 to the 26th of July movement. What an incredible irony, given its later plots to assassinate Castro. By the summer of 1958, Batista was beginning to see Castro as a genuine force and a perennial thorn in his side. Understanding the need to smoke the rebels out of their mountain hideout for good, he dispatched General Eulogio Cantillo to the Sierra Maestra to oversee a major military offensive that was dubbed Operation Verano, or Plan FF, for Fin de Fidel, or the End of Fidel. With his popularity imploding and his foreign allies abandoning him, it was Batista's last throw of the dice. But despite a minor victory at the Battle of La Mercedes in August 1958, Operation Verano failed to quash the rapidly spreading rebellion. Part of the problem was poor military intelligence. Many of Cantillo's decisions were based on his assumption that the rebel army was far bigger than it actually was. It was perhaps some 3,000 strong by the summer of 1958. But historical reports vary, and Castro's own reported figures fluctuated wildly. One certain advantage that Castro had was the motivation and morale of his followers. The rebels were bonded by the spirit of the underdog. Not only were they fighting for their lives, but in the days before Castro cast his lot with the Soviet Union, they were inspired by ideology and the dream of a better future. Sympathetic journalists and photographers elevated them to the realm of romantic myth. Before the 1961 Bay of Pigs debacle and the friendly visits to Moscow, all of which soured the relationship with the United States, while the revolutionaries were seen as virtuous cowboys cleaning up Cuba's wild east. On the contrary, Batista's army of 12,000 paid conscripts was carrying out the dirty work of an increasingly embarrassing dictator. Many soldiers refused to even fire their weapons. Some even secretly defected. With Operation Verano derailed and Batista's tactical decisions becoming increasingly irrational, the end looked to be in sight. Sensing a groundswell in popular support across the country, Castro sent Guevara and Cienfuegos, his two senior commanders, on a long march west to Las Villas province in an attempt to cut the country in two. It was the first time in nearly two years that the rebel army had come down from the mountains to face the enemy 
on open ground. The tentative and largely clandestine advance took seven weeks, with the rebel columns mostly covering ground at night in tough, unfavorable conditions. But support across the country was growing. The inexperienced but tight-knit group of revolutionaries found that they had picked up new recruits wherever they went. Their numbers quickly doubled. By late December 1958, both columns had taken up strategic positions in central Cuba, Guevara outside the city of Santa Clara, and Cienfuegos some 50 miles to the east near the settlement of Yagajay. Cienfuegos acted first, attacking a well-defended military garrison on the settlement's outskirts. The government's soldiers managed to hold out for 11 days before they ran out of ammunition on December 30th. By this point, Guevara was in the midst of a battle for Cuba's fourth-largest city, Santa Clara, with his force of 350 men, many of them barely out of their teens, and outnumbered 10 to 1. Undaunted, the rebels fearlessly derailed an armored train, capturing its weapons and cutting communications. Tired, dejected, and torn by conflicting loyalties, the city's leaders surrendered. The action that turned out to be the death knell for the Batista regime had ultimately been achieved with a couple of bulldozers and a hail of Molotov cocktails. Hearing of Santa Clara's capitulation at a glitzy New Year's Eve party at Camp Columbia in Havana, Batista panicked and he fled the country. Boarding a plane with 40 cohorts and $300 million in cash, he headed to the Dominican Republic. And that's because the U.S. government refused to have him. There he was greeted by President Rafael Trujillo, another soon-to-be-deposed despot. Acting swiftly to offset a military coup, Castro stationed himself on the western approach to Santiago de Cuba, and he threatened to invade the city if it refused to surrender. Protecting him on his eastern flank, Raul Castro stood guard over Guantanamo, while Guevara and Cienfuegos headed directly for Havana. Facing a juggernaut of revolutionary fervor, Santiago's military leaders surrendered without a shot being fired, and from the balcony of the city hall on New Year's Day in 1959, an ecstatic Fidel Castro announced the triumph of the revolution. Across Cuba, jubilation was mixed with confusion and trepidation. In Havana, casinos were looted, parking meters were smashed, and a Cuban farmer marched his pigs into the lobby of the five-star Hotel Rivera, then owned by Meyer Lansky, the richest and most powerful American mafia boss on the island. The war seemed to be over. Castro began a triumphant, week-long procession across the country. Guevara took up residence in Havana's Cabana Fort, and in a middle-of-the-night interview with Ed Sullivan, the U.S. television host in... Matanzas, Cuba's new maximum leader, claimed in faltering English that he was a Democrat. The euphoria, however, didn't last long. Within just six weeks, ruthless reprisals, including show trials and executions, were being meted out with fresh zeal 
by Cuba's fledgling revolutionary government. The cycle seemed to be starting all over again. Thank you for listening to episode 133 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.